The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, open your Bibles now to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We're in a series that we're calling What's So Great About the Gospel? Uh, the gospel is explained all through the book of Romans, but in the, the verses before us, in verses 6 through 11, Paul answers really this question, what's so great about the gospel in everything he's taught up through the first four chapters and everything that will lead into the next uh, six chapters, and then we'll get into uh, an explanation of connecting the Old Testament to the New Testament. He says the gospel satisfies the greatest need. The gospel demonstrates the greatest love. Today we'll look at, excuse me, last time. uh, No, today we'll look at the gospel uh, extinguishes the greatest threat. Then the gospel mediates the greatest conflict. And the gospel provokes the greatest response. When you look at the gospel, are are you aware of its multifaceted, multidimensional application that it can have for your own soul? It's not just unilateral. It's like looking at a diamond and from every angle it glistens. Let's look at these verses before us. Verses 6 through 11. Paul says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. It should surprise no one that the world in which we live is full of threats. Think about it for a minute. Viruses and bacteria are a constant threat to to, uh, your health and to everyday living. The Center for Disease Control regularly reports that any year could bring a new strain of the influenza virus that could literally wipe out as many people as happened in 1918. Do you remember the, well, not do you remember, hopefully you weren't there. Did you read about, there are a few of you I could ask about that. Did you read about the 1918 epidemic, the H1N1 pandemic of that year, infected 500 million people across the world, including even the remotest islands of the Pacific and the Antarctic and the Arctic. It went north and south and all the way around, even to small islands, barely inhabited. The influenza virus made it there. It killed up to 100 million people. 5% of the world's population died from that influenza outbreak, and it's known as one of the deadliest disasters in human history. In fact, that pandemic killed more people than all of World War I. We're one little strain away from that happening any flu season. There are threats from heart disease, threats from cancer, threats from accidents, threats from food. 
Just think about the threats we face from driving. Just driving. You could get hit by another car. You could get into a car accident by yourself. You could fall asleep at the wheel. You could lose control in bad weather. You could have a mechanical failure. You could hit an animal crossing into your path. People crossing into your path. Just the simple task of driving represents an innumerable amount of threats. There are threats from national enemies. There are threats from burglars. Threats from riding in a plane. Threats from driving across a bridge. You could go on and on and on. There are threats sitting in this building right now. How much faith do you really have in those arches above you? There are threats all around. Sometimes we think about those threats and oftentimes we ignore them. But do you really think about the greatest threat in your life and in your world? It'll be an interesting discussion to get your younger kids around a lunch table today and say, what's the greatest threat in the world? And just to see what they say. When addressing to his disciples in Luke 12, Jesus speaking with them, he understood what they were afraid of and he identified the greatest threat in their lives and I think the answer he gave them shocked them. It wasn't the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus, plotting to kill them. It wasn't the scribes. It wasn't the Sadducees. It wasn't the Roman government. Listen to what Jesus described the greatest threat in life to. He said to the men, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they could do. Just process that sentence for a minute. Hey, don't be afraid of the people who can kill you. Jesus, um, I don't know if, if you like your life, but we like ours. What do you mean, don't be afraid of those who can kill you? He says, because that's all they can do. More than that, I tell you, I warn you, whom to fear, fear the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Jesus says that the greatest threat in the universe is God. The greatest threat in the universe is God, but he also provides the greatest provision for that threat. The Lord himself directs attention to that great threat in human existence, in human experience, and says it is none other than God himself. Specifically, his wrath and his judgment. That's what he speaks of. God has the authority not just to kill. Oh, people can just kill you. God can not only take your life, he can put your life into hell forever as objects of his wrath. Speaking about God's wrath and speaking about God's judgment, certainly speaking about hell is not popular these days. People prefer a kinder, gentler, nicer God. One who's senile, like an old grandfather who wishes to do nothing but, us, but give us good gifts and, and is really fuzzy on his memory. That's not the God of the Bible. The biblical record does not present such a deity. It's exactly what we've been looking at in the first four chapters of Romans. As we said from the very beginning, if, if, if you have self-esteem issues, especially spiritually, Romans is not the book of you, for you. Paul calls us every possible spiritual bad name he can all the way through this book. And for good reason. We are right deservers of those names, sinners, ungodly, unrighteous, enemies of God, wicked. Man is born, as we learned in chapter 1, under the wrath of God. We are born with a stiff arm in God's face. We've said over and over, you don't 
have to teach a two-year-old how to sin. Comes quite naturally. Because man is born in sin, under God's wrath, aimed for hell, God, in an indescribably merciful act, enters into human history and solves that dilemma. What's the dilemma? The great theme of Romans is this word that's translated righteousness. It's the word that speaks of what we need most. It means perfection. The same word is is also translated justification, to be righteous, to be just before God. We desperately need to be right and just before God. We just sang it. I love uh, uh, one of the songs we just sang. It just said, sin can't be in God's presence. He cannot bear sin, and we're sinners. That creates an unbreachable gap between us. Said another way, no one can ever go to heaven unless they're perfect without sin. Well, that, that certainly excludes all of us, doesn't it? That excludes every person in human history save one, and that was Jesus Christ. And the whole point of the first four chapters of Romans is we need perfection, we need justification, we need righteousness that we can never get ourselves, earn ourselves, be right enough or good enough to accomplish ourselves, but Christ has exactly what we need. And in the gospel, he takes, it's a mathematical equation. In the mathematical equation that he uses in Romans 3 and 4, and he'll come back to at the end of Romans 5, is the word imputation. It really means to assign a number to a ledger. So what he does is he takes Jesus' righteousness from Jesus' ledger, takes his righteousness, and declares us perfect and righteous on behalf of him. Now, the great problem is, well, what about us? What about our sin? It just can't go away. Well, then he takes our sin and imputes, credits, declares Jesus on the cross as sin for us, and he dies in our place. That's the great doctrine of substitution. We believe what God has done for us, and God gives us righteousness, which, as we've said over and over, is very different than the Catholic Catholic doctrine of infusion versus imputation. Imputation, God declares us righteous because of his son. Infusion says, no, God makes us righteous, and eventually, because he makes us righteous, you can work out that righteousness long enough and in a a perfected way enough that God will finally say, you're you're done enough. This this Christian is ready to come out of the oven and, and come to heaven you don't make it in this life, by the way, you can keep working in purgatory to purge that sinfulness and get ready for heaven. Nothing can be farther from Paul's mind. God declares wicked sinners righteous and just and holy and perfect based on nothing we could do ever. But he takes the righteousness of Christ and says, I'm going to give you that. That's the first four chapters. So he comes to chapter 5, Paul does, and he says, therefore, having that happened, having been justified by faith, not works, by faith, by believing what God has done, we have peace with God, how? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is an underlinable verse in your Bible. That is absolutely riveting uh, summary of doctrinal theological truth at an epic deep level. 
So chapter 5 really begins the so what of the gospel. And you may have read in certain commentaries this is, well, the first eight chapters of of Romans is doctrine. The last eight chapters is is practical. Well, first of all, it doesn't break down like that because there's a lot of practical in chapter 1 and a lot of doctrinal in chapter 16. So you can't make it that clean. But if you are going to say Paul builds a theological argument and then begins to say, so what? That begins not in chapter 9. It begins right here in chapter 5. Because we have peace with God, so what? The first thing he tells us is, so your life's not going to be necessarily any better, but God's peace will trump anything that happens in your life. And that first little cycle that he gives us in chapter 5 is that we exult in our tribulations just as we exult in the hope of the glory of God, verses 2 and 3. Remember, exult is to enter into an emotional engagement with, is to be overjoyed, to jump up and down, to, to spill happiness on people. We can do that in the hope of glory going to heaven, but he says that same word, we also exult in our tribulations. How? Because we know something, verse 3. Knowing, probably the most important verse in the Bible, knowing what we know makes a difference. That's practical application. We can endure trials and suffering knowing that God is doing something behind the scenes invisibly with a, an invisible hand in the glove of our trials in a way that makes a difference. In the first eight verses, Paul describes our peace with God, even through trials, and the love that we have from the great judge through Jesus, his son. And the amazing reality that Christ died for sinners leads Paul to describe some amazing realities that flow out of it. This is the so what. So we've been working through this, this uh, so what, specifically with the love of God in verses 6 through 11. Remember we learned that God's love is different than other people's love. Other people's love would sacrifice for their friends. God's love sacrifices for his enemies and sinners and wicked, ungodly wretches like you and me. In the midst of that, this little paragraph from 6 to 11, he says in verse 9, much more than. Now, the much more than is a, is, a, is, a, is a very interesting word in the Greek that's used four times in this passage. We're going to drill into it in a minute. But he says, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. He cannot let go of justification. Now, as you know, we spent almost a year uh, in which uh, one of our beloved high schoolers who was at my house one time says, you know, you kind of say the same thing every week um, in Romans. And I, I'm guilty as charged. Paul said the same thing from the middle of chapter 2 all the way through chapter 3 and then illustrated it all in chapter 4. And I can't escape that. And I don't know how to tell you this, but he's going to keep saying it from the rest of the book, throughout the rest of the book. He comes back to justification. In this section of what's so great about the gospel, he really talks about the fact that the gospel deals with our greatest threat, which is God himself. As we study that together, I want to find with you two protective provisions in the gospel. Two protective provisions for us in the gospel. The first is in the first part of verse 9. We'll just be looking at one verse today. The first is this. The gospel provides the greatest possible sacrifice. The gospel provides the greatest possible sacrifice. Look at that first phrase. Much more than 
having now been justified by his blood. This is where Paul begins a, an argument that he's going to use several times in the book of Romans. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser, the best to the least, the, the, the bigger to the smaller. Malone in the Greek. The point is, if God has done the more difficult thing, certainly he will do the easier thing. The most difficult thing here is justifying the sinner so we can have absolute confidence, confidence he will do what is, by comparison, an easier thing, which in the next phrase we'll learn is, is to save us from his wrath. Saving those he's already declared righteous is easier than making them righteous in the first place. Why is this an argument from the greater to the lesser? Because the greater involved the death of his son. The second involves a simple declaration. The term much more than is used four times in this, in this chapter. Verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, um, and verse 10, verse 15, and verse 17. Much more than. If, you have, if God will do this great thing, he will certainly do this lesser thing. Uh, I, I was reading a, a, a devotional for teenagers on Romans, and it had a really good illustration about this. It says, it this is how you think about that. If your parents would pay for you to go to Disneyland and to take you to Disneyland, then they would also let you get on the rides. That's the point he's making. If God would do this great thing, certainly he would do the easier thing. That's what the much more than is about. He's done the harder thing in reconciling godless sinners who are enemies through the death of his son. So let there be no doubt he will save them on the last day. This is a passage that speaks to the assurance of our salvation probably more clear than any other place in the scripture. Do you think that you, you should have a lack of confidence that God will save you at the great judgment when he already crucified his son for you? Great practical, even emotional implications of that. Hebrews 10 says in verse 11, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. He has done and finished and accomplished and put an exclamation point on our salvation. Not only has he done it, not only will he save you, you can't lose it. Listen, this should be so clear. If you could lose your salvation, if you could, you would. If it were possible to lose your salvation, I promise you all of us would. Meaning, if we had to keep our salvation, if it was up to us, no one has that kind of grace. No one has that kind of power. If in the words of Paul, Philippians, he who began a good work in you will continue to complete it until when? This day, the day of Christ Jesus when he comes in judgment. Justification is the theme of the book of Romans, as we've said over and over, righteousness. And it comes right back to Paul's argument in this passage. Remember Romans 3, 23 and 24, all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Let's never, ever, 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 how many ever's can I put on that? Forget. The salvation is a gift of God's redeeming grace. 
when you, Phil was talking about this last weekend, when you struggle with your salvation, you're really struggling with your theology. You're, you're really struggling with saying, I'm trying to justify myself. Now, that doesn't mean you should never ask questions. There are some people who probably should ask questions, who presume on God's grace. But if you love Christ, if you're wanting to please Christ, if we're, if we're seeking after Christ and we see failures, that's the application of grace that should bring us hope and joy, not the pursuit of perfection. What did John say in 1 John 1, and at the end of 1 John 1, in the first part of 1 John 2? If we say we have no sin, we call God a liar. So we won't reach perfection here. And when we see sin, it makes us glory in the fact that Christ died for us on the cross. Not try to ratchet up our efforts so that God might somehow stop being mad at us and accept us again. Having been justified, declared righteous by faith, Romans 5.1 says. Now we come to an interesting word in this sentence. Having been justified by his blood. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say Christ. He talks about Christ before and after this. But here in verse 9, he, he says, we've been justified by his blood. Now we need to stop right there for a moment. Christianity is fundamentally a very bloody religion. It's built on the Old Testament sacrificial system. When you see blood here, it's not talking about his corpuscles, white blood cells and red blood cells. That's not what saves. It's the sacrifice. The blood here is in reference to the cross. It might surprise you to know that people bled very little on a cross. There was very little blood that was shed on a cross. Jesus was bloody, no, no doubt. Isaiah 53 says we couldn't even recognize him. He had been beaten to a pulp. He had a, 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 a thorny crown on his head. There was no doubt blood involved. But what happens in the physiology of a cross, even with the nails in your feet, is everything clots and goes to the, the bottom extremities of your body, and you don't bleed much. Why go into that description? Because he, we weren't saved by his physical blood. That's an old Catholic notion that even fed the idea that that blood was captured in a chalice that King Arthur would, some, King Arthur would someday get and rule England by. Just fantastical stuff. When it says we're saved by his blood, it's talking about sacrifice, not corpuscles. It's always been the way of God. Look back at, at Genesis chapter 3 for a moment. You know this passage well. You have to understand what feeds this idea that Paul says we're justified by Christ's blood. God has always justified or made sacrifice or made atonement by blood. Genesis 3, you know Adam and Eve were, were in the garden. They saw the snake. Uh, verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate. Where was Adam? She also gave to her husband with her. He was standing right there the whole time. And he ate. And isn't it interesting that even though Eve ate the fruit first, we'll find out at the end of Romans, that Romans 5, that Adam was the one held responsible. So they run from God. You know the rest of the story. They, they try to cover their shame. I also find it interesting. Can I just have a little personal aside to the ladies on a cold day? This is a good day to talk about modesty. Really good day to talk about modesty because it's freezing outside and everybody's all covered up. Isn't it interesting 
that the first recognition of sin was the recognition of immodesty? Very interesting. So they tried to cover themselves up. And they found some plants and covered themselves up. For the record, plants would have been a very acceptable way of covering up nakedness. Most of us are wearing cotton today. They could cover their nakedness with the leaves. They could not cover their shame. So, verse 21, the Lord made garments of what? Skin, leather for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. That word clothed is the same word as translates, and he atoned them. He atoned for them. From the very beginning, God said, something must die as a result of sin. People have asked over and over, well, was God telling the truth when he told Adam and Eve, the day you sin, you die, and they didn't die, and people say, well, well, they died spiritually. I don't think that's what's going on here. He said, the day you'll sin, you'll die. And he kept that promise, not by killing them, but by providing a substitute and a sacrifice. Abraham goes up on Mount Moriah to sacrifice his son Isaac. And at the very end, what does he find? Caught in a thicket, a ram. So he is... Sacrifice was for the son. If you want a, if you want a picture of, that, uh, of Christ in that, Christ is not Isaac in that passage. Christ would be the ram. The ram dies. Even in Leviticus, Leviticus is all regulations, law, except one narrative section. Remember in, in, in Leviticus 9 and 10, the one narrative section here comes the wrath of God, the fire of God out and consumes the sacrifice instead of the people, except in chapter 10 where it consumed the priests instead of the sacrifice, Nadab and Abihu. And then just turn over. You've got you to remember Exodus chapter 12. One of my favorite Old Testament foundational predictive understandings of the cross. I want you to just do some math here with me. So the Passover, Exodus 12. Now the Lord said to to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be the beginning of months for you. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month. So let's just stop right there. What day are we talking about on the calendar? Day 10. See it? See it in your mind? Day 10. Just remember that. They are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor will go to the nearest house and they're to take one according to the number of the persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. What day did they get it? Kids, what day did we get it? What was the first day on the calendar that we talked about? Day what? 10, good. And now they're going to kill it on day what? 
14. Now, if you count, that's the fifth day. They get it the 10th. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. So they have it in their, their, their house for five days. You ever wonder why? Why? Why in your house five days? Because in five days, this family would develop an unusual affection for this little lamb. It's a pet. Then on the fifth day, the father would bring the family around. If you read later in Exodus, they would lay their hands on the lamb. The father would look up. This was not a, a G-rated scene. The little kids were there. They got fluffy there. The father would get down on his knee, take a 12-inch blade, and with all the children present would slice the throat of that lamb. It would struggle. It would, it would gasp. Blood would be spewing everywhere. It would fall. It would begin trembling and shaking, and it would die. And the father would explain to the children, this lamb died, so we would not. John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, sees Jesus coming to be baptized and says to the people around him what? Behold the Lamb of God. That's what he's referencing. The unblemished, perfect, spotless sacrifice. So when, John, when Paul says we're, sacri- we're saved by his blood, justified by his blood, it's his sacrifice. It's his substitutionary atonement for us. Romans 3.25, God displayed publicly Jesus as a propitiation in his blood through faith. It was to demonstrate the righteousness of God because of the forbearance of God. He passed over those sins previously committed. It's all over. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 2.13 But now in Christ Jesus, you who are formerly far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The sacrifice of Christ. Colossians 1.20 Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Not talking about his bleeding, but his death, his sacrifice. The demands of God's justice must be met and sacrificed by death. Isaiah one twenty seven: Zion will be redeemed with justice. Isaiah 53.5, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Listen, he was pierced through for our transgressions. Substitute in our place. The chastening for our well-being fell on him. By his scourging, we are healed. It goes him, us, him, us, him, us. And in the him, us equation in Isaiah 53, he gets all the wrath and we get all the blessing. Just like back in chapter 3, verse 24, the link between justification and the death of Christ can never be missed. We have been justified by his death. Now, the point he's going to make is if he did that, which is the greater thing, the crucifixion of his son on behalf of wicked enemy sinners, how much easier is it for him to do, secondly, this, this lesser thing? So, the gospel provides the greatest possible sacrifice and the gospel res- resolves the worst possible danger. This is such good news. This will make you sleep well at night. Then we will be saved from the wrath of God through him, verse 9 says. Greater to the lesser if he 
if he justified us by the sacrifice of his son, that's the greater thing. Don't you think he will save you from the wrath in the end on the last day? This is active. This is the crucifixion of a son. This is just declarative. This is saying, you may come into heaven. The ultimate threat facing every man and every woman is not sin, it's not Satan, it's not the world, it's not even death, it's the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 9, they themselves report about us uh, uh, to us what kind of reception we have with you, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of God come when you speak of the wrath of God the presupposition there is that God is angry in your theological thinking do do, do you have an angry God now if all God was was angry it'd be out of balance right but let's say at the other side if all God was was good and gracious and merciful, that would be out of balance as well. The wrath of God is an attribute of God just as much as any other part. It's an attribute without which he would be less than God. Now say that again. Without God's wrath, God would not be God. A.W. Pink says this, The wrath of God is as much a divine perfection as his faithfulness, his power, or his mercy. It must be so, for there's no blemish whatsoever in God, not the slightest defect in the character of God, yet there would be if wrath were absent from him. He continues, The wrath of God is his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. Just let that marinate in your mind. His eternal detestation detestation of all unrighteousness. He detests sin. It is the pleasure and indignation of the divine equity against evil. It is the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It's the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes upon evildoers. God is angry against sin because it is rebelling against his authority, a wrong done to his inviolable sovereignty. Pink goes on, insurrectionists against God's government shall be made to know that God is Lord. They shall be made to feel how that great majesty in which they despise is dreadfully threatening upon them with with which they resolve such little regard. Not that God's anger is malignant and malicious retaliation, inflicting injury for the sake of it, or in return for injury received. No, while God will vindicate his dominion as governor of the universe, he will not be vindictive. You know what that's saying? God God doesn't punch back when he's punched initially. I grew up with with two brothers. I was the oldest and the smallest. And um, I just got to tell you, and... Luke, John, Mark, please don't listen to this right now. We, we, we fought all the time. I mean, just, you know, some people get disciplined for, for fighting. My parents would just send us out in the rain and say, work it out. Um, we, we were just always 
at each other's throats. I love my brothers today. I think they love me. hope they do. My sister was the youngest, and she was just the... That's for another time. The little princess who never... Anyway, that's for another time. Sabrina, if you ever hear this, we have to talk someday. I just remembered how easy it was to get mad when I was offended or hit, wronged by my brother. I was an expert retaliator. Expert. I mean, just reflexive. We understand that, right? Somebody cuts you off and you just want to pray for them. God's not reflexive in his wrath. It's not a reflex. Like we do something, and remember in Exodus 34, God, you know, he reveals himself to Moses and he says, you know, the Lord, the Lord God, gracious and compassionate, loving kindness, shows uh, grace to uh, generation after generation. He, it's all these wonderful demonstrations of his kind goodness. And at the end he said, and will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. God is more inclined to grace and mercy than he is to wrath. Can I prove that to you? Would you feel your heartbeat? That's proof enough. We're alive. Wicked sinners are alive who who can still hear the gospel. But God will not be mocked. Every sin of every person will be paid for either by them in hell or by Jesus on the cross. For many, the idea of hell is morally disgusting, even deeply offensive. Edward Donnelly writes, they regard hell as primitive superstition, a crude boogeyman used by tyrannical churches to terrify and manipulate its gullible adherents, end quote. Really? When's the last time you really thought about hell? We've spoken about it before. It's described as a place of fiery torment where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched in Mark 9, an everlasting fire in Matthew 18, a fire in Matthew 5, an unquenchable fire in Luke 3, 17, a flame, Luke 16, 24, an eternal fire, Jude 7, fire and brimstone, Revelation 14, 10, a furnace of fire, Matthew 13, 42. Remember that great quote in Dante's Inferno? That inscription over the gate of hell which reads, All hope abandon ye who enter here. William Nichols of Puritan says, For the damned who inhabit hell, the place of eternal wrath, hell is truth learned too late. That might be the best description I've ever heard of hell. Truth learned too late. There, we can talk about the horrors of hell, and that's certainly sobering. We can talk about the, 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 the damnation and the fire. and the, that's one, I think what, what grips me about hell is that there's no, there's no appeal. There's never a second chance. Once you're there, it's, it's done. There is no tomorrow to look forward to ever in hell. It never, ever ends. Doesn't that make you just want to go and stop every car out there and say, please don't go there. Please. 
Why bring all that up? Because Paul says very simply, that's what we were saved from. If he crucified his son to make us righteous, don't you think he will also save us in the great day of wrath? If he took us to Disneyland, don't you think he'll let us ride the rides? Why do people not respond to this, this unbelievable message? Ecclesiastes 8 says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. What he's saying is God, God is merciful every day and doesn't execute judgment in the instant of our sin. And because he doesn't, men will presume on that grace and mercy until they harden their heart. What's the greatest threat in the universe? God. You know what the gospel does? The gospel is God, think about this, protecting us from himself. Not by turning away, not by dismissing us, but just like it happened in the garden, the day you sin, you die. Did he keep that promise? Yes, by offering them a substitute, by making a substitute where an animal died in their place. And that's a silly animal. What about you and me? What, what about presuming on the blood of the Son of God that was offered for those who would believe? We are justified by blood, by sacrifice, by Christ's death. The gospel extinguishes that greatest threat. I hope that you have run to the cross to be protected from God's wrath. He is coming and he is angry, rightfully and righteously so. And only those who are found in his son have not only hope, but have joy that if he saved us, he will also protect us from himself. Father, I pray for the the souls of all who are under the hearing of this precious text, that you would protect us from yourself, the greatest threat, the wrath that we rightly deserve poured out on your, your son, your son, Lord, for an unspeakable blessing. Where your heads are bowed, if you don't know Christ, Please don't leave the building without dealing with that reality. Our prayer room will be open to my right. and Ben and Becky will be over there. If we can pray for you or talk to you. Look, it's a snowy day and everyone wants to get out and see the snow and play. Don't leave without dealing with the realities of your soul. Lord, work in your people, your word. Call sinners to yourself because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.